This is the Pain Information Podcast for providers and patients as well. Welcome back, everybody. This is a little different today. I'm going to take this up a notch. I'm going to take it to both the provider level, and patients are going to find it interesting, too, when we kind of talk about the science, the technology that's available, and some of the pharmacologic decision-making that we go through. Once again, I'm, I am not scripted. Uh, the, the fibromyalgia one uh, <laughs> was not scripted. It may sound that way, but the point is I, I want to take the knowledge base and transform it to something that I think is conversational. We could we could make this kind of a formal lecture, but it's just not going to be interesting. So this is conversational, and this is what I would do if I was talking to another colleague. Okay, so for disclosures, I, I need to do these disclosures. It's ethical to do this. I do uh, belong to a speaker's bureau, and that's with Depomed. It's a very good company. And I do it uh, mostly so I can uh, do outreach to uh, physicians and donate a lot of the um, proceeds from that. I I got a day job. I do it to uh, help with the promotion of pain control strategies to a very interested audience. And so I just want to be real clear on that. Other than that, I really don't have a lot of conflicts of interest. I I enjoy talking to other physicians. I like the platform. Whenever I go to ASIP, the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, I don't take an honorarium. I go there, and some of it's on my own nickel. Some, you know, they they reimburse. But it, it's really a traditional thing for me to avail myself for educational matters. That's part of the Hippocratic Oath, really. It's where physicians share, and in this case, uh, physician to provider, FNP, PA, uh, RN, etc., just just for the patient's better outcome and important community safety. All right, <clears throat> so paininformation.com, and if you go to iTunes and leave me a review, I'd really appreciate it. This is uh, one of the promptings that I had for this rather informal discussion today, is I had a uh, provider of pain care uh, talk to me through paininformation.com. I read them all, and I appreciate them all. Talk to me and ask me to talk a little bit more about opioids. And I agree, this is a huge subject. It's very contemporary. Uh, It's a, a very tricky subject. And I don't want to go through a lot of statistics on opioids. I'll do that another day. But let's just say there's about 40 people a day that are dying from opioid-related problems. I'm also going to say, of that 40 that die, if you go down the list at ER visits, ICU admissions, and you keep drilling it down to misuse and abuse as well as diversion, there's a whole bunch of people down there that are misusing, abusing, Uh, medications up to the tip of the pyramid where we actually have the uh, death. And they're all tragic, all tragic. And opioids have gripped American society. Uh, There's a number of causes for it. The first one I'm going to call cause, and I'm going to call us out, is iatrogenic addiction. Okay, what is that? Iatrogenic addiction is, I actually coined this term a long time ago because iatrogenic means uh, pretty much from within the medical community. 
all well-meaning, except for a few pill mills, all um, interested in the patient's best interest, we want to afford pain relief. Well, in the process of affording pain relief, we also have created somebody that became first dependent on opioids. Dependency is not addiction. They became tolerant on opioids. Tolerance is not addiction by definition. And then they became craving. And craving is not necessarily an addiction, and it's not a moral failing. What craving is is a physiologic process, uh, once again, in the primitive part of the brain, among other places, driven by dopamine and other factors, probably biopsychosocial. There's other issues going on there that take an individual and grips them. They want that medication. They need that medication. I can tell you from personal experience, when I go into a room and I talk to people about putting them on long-acting medicines or these pharmacokinetically long-acting, what we call L.A. opioids. Uh, and I can tell them, I can give you a medicine, you just have to take once a day. And I can put you on a patch that you don't have to change for seven days. And they go, oh, I'm not going to get pain relief from that. Why? Yes, you are. <laughs> we'll, we'll get your blood level up and we'll get those mu opioid receptors saturated and you'll be fine. Well, I need my pills. We are a unfortunate pill society. We've been indoctrinated to that. If it's not a pill, and if I don't have an active movement two or three times a day, like the smoker that says I've got to have something in my hand, you know, it's just this motion thing. It's this principled idea that if you don't take something on a regular basis, it won't work. Not true. Okay. We'll expand, we'll expand on that uh, a little further. So to round it out, the question I had from a listener that was actually a provider of pain care was, please do more uh, on opioids. Uh, can you X, Y, and Z? And I'll do the X, Y, and Z. Uh, I'm going to talk about opioids, and I'm going to talk about them uh, at a fairly elevated level, but I, I never want to talk down to people. If you want me to talk more sophisticated, say so. If you want me to present it uh, at MD-PhD level, say so. If you want me to present it as a clinician would so that there's no barrier to communication to like a patient, say so. But communicate with me, please, and go to iTunes and please uh, review me. Thank you for the reviews. I've gotten five-star reviews. I thank everyone, and I just uh, appreciate it so much. So let's talk about this for a second, all right? I, 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 go, I go into a room, and this is what I know. Um, I do a brief background check. I don't like to call it um, anything more than that. I'm not a police officer. I'm not trying to do anything to, quote, catch somebody. That's not what I do. What I do is I try to go in with as much information as I can possibly have to afford the best clinical outcome when that uh, interaction uh, ends for the clinic visit. Understanding that I have benchmarks, we've talked about this, three, six, nine, and 12 months. And if we don't hit those benchmarks, and, and you help me with these things, patients help me with these things, um, then I want to know why I'm not hitting those benchmarks. So is it riding in a car? Is it going to a grocery store? Is it anything that you consider enjoyable? Picking up the grandchildren, whatever it is. If we don't hit those benchmarks, I want to know why. 
And I go in, and I've usually done a criminal background check. And you say, oh, my God, what are you doing? I get a lot of information out of that. Uh, and it sounds kind of crazy we do that. It is not. Uh, just today, uh, a patient I went in, they don't know sometimes what I know. I have queried the uh, PDMP. That's the central database where I can see what prescriptions they've got from what pharmacy, from what physician, when they got them, and the criminal background check. That's public record. And I think that's responsible. Just today, uh, a a trafficking (laughs) charge last year on a patient who says he's been clean since 1997. I I have to take that clinical information to into account because let's face it if i give this individual with questionable need remember legitimate medical need a drug am i giving it really to the community i don't know this is part of risk management we've talked about that risk management is really identifying the risk versus the reward is giving a drug or a treatment Benefiting the individual enough to justify the potential risk, okay? Risk is loss. Loss can be anything from loss of function, uh, somnolence, uh, they just can't stay awake, uh, loss of quality of life, all the way to loss of life. So I walk in the room. And this is what I want to do with a new patient. I want to go in and I want it to be a gentle introduction. My voice is low. I do not make a lot of eye contact. This is my style. I'm not saying this is your style or anybody else's style. But I'm just I'm telling you, patients, and I'm telling providers what I do. And I, I have a foundation of a few decades. So... This is what I do to the introduction as I go in so no one comes in like a bull in a china store. I'm not charged. I call it charged where I walk in a room and I know a lot and I just start saying, well, what about this? What about that? That's not what you want to do because on the other side of my credentials are addiction. And I know these people, first of all, they can clean up. Number two, they can have legitimate pain needs. Number three, we're not perfect. You know, we're all snowflakes. Sometimes we screw up. And the saying is most of us do. Most patients screw up on opioids. And that doesn't mean they necessarily intended to. That doesn't mean they necessarily calculated to do it. This is a complicated world. And medication management in pain management is complicated. Remember those five rules. Into the room I go. My head is lowered. And so I'm very quiet. And how you doing, um, Dr. Hansen? What's going on? How can I help you? That's the most important question. How can I help you? Because I'm trying to get at what's called the chief complaint. What is a chief complaint? It is bothering the patient the most right now. Low back pain. Is that a diagnosis? Well, that's rule two. You must have a diagnosis. No, low back pain is a symptom. So a lot of times they start telling me about symptoms. And I need to know a diagnosis because I need to define legitimate medical need to keep the risk-reward benefit way in the patient's favor, way in the community's favor. Okay, so if I'm very disarming and they feel non-threatened, and that's exactly what I want, is a non-threatened environment, 
we are humans, and we are there to be, first of all, a compassionate care provider, <laughs> but also understanding we have a limited amount of time to connect. Okay, so I'm trying to connect and let them feel like they can speak. Do I like family members back there? Most times, no. I, I'll talk about that later. Um, do I want spouses back there? No. Most times, no. We'll talk about that later. There's reasons. Um, and f- for whatever reason, uh, workman's comp, uh, patients always want somebody in the room. There's a lot of reasons for that. I really just want to talk to the patient. We can let our heads spin out there in the podcast community why I want to be alone with the patient. I usually try to have a nurse come in most times. Okay, get a chief complaint. Well, my back hurts. I've had leg pain. My doctor says I have a lot of arthritis. Well, arthritis is a big word. I look out in a parking lot, and I see a lot of cars. There's a lot of cars out there. One's a Ferrari. One's a Ford. Uh, What kind of arthritis do you have? Okay, so here comes the question set. Within the question set... I go down history, and then I'll do a physical, and then I'll make medical decision-making. Those are the three components to what we do. History, physical, medical decision-making. That drives what we do next, clinical action. So based on what I know from previous records, previous conversations with either providers that have taken care of this person, which rarely happens, and my, and my most important interaction with the patient, remember rule one, pain is a description, it's not an entity, I am able to, to put together a plan, and the patient will be thinking of benchmarks. All right, my head's down, and I ask a question, okay, um, you know, I, as a process of adherence monitoring, and I do this with everyone, uh, most everyone, I usually do. Um, I need to get a urine sample for a urine drug test or a urine drug screen. It's not really a screen. We don't call it a screen. These are medically necessary. So uh, there's the first step. And usually patients are wonderful about this. They're wonderful. They know it's a pain clinic. We have to be careful, and we do adherence monitoring. That's drug screens. We also explain the patient care agreement. Either I do that or the nurse does that. Uh, but there's no barrier to communication. And then we instruct them that there's policies. These aren't rules necessarily. They're policies. Like we want them to bring their pain meds in at each visit. Or actually, you know what? Put all your medicines in a baggie and or in a bag or whatever, and bring them in and keep them in the original containers. Please, people, don't come in with uh, containers <laughs> that have like six or seven pills short. Oh, it's in a uh, pill counter at home or a, a, a daily planner at home. Please don't do that. Uh, and don't mix all your pills together. Get the number of pills you have in the container and in the proper container. Now, there's something else. A lot of um, law enforcement communities really get upset when patients have uh, unescorted, I call them unescorted pills. In other words, they aren't in the original container. They're just like uh, in something that they carry in their pocket or something like this. They don't know anything about those pills. They don't know if they're prescribed, if they're pulled over, or God forget they get in an accident. You don't need an impairment. 
You don't need an impairment charge. You don't need uh, roadside sobriety. You don't need any of these things. So please keep them in the proper containers. And it also helps me understand you. Uh, Many times uh, the referring provider will have, quote, given you just enough to get to the pain clinic. That drives me crazy. I really have no way to do any pill counts and that sort of thing. And then I get the proverbial I took my last pill today. Or when I asked for a drug screen, is there going to be anything in the drug screen? I said it very softly, non-challenging. Well, I had one put back. I had one in the drawer. Don't tell me that either. You know, tell me the truth, and I want to hear the truth. That's important. But I don't want to hear about scattered pills. I don't want to hear about unaccounted for pills. I don't want to hear a story. This, is a, this means a lot to me. It means a lot to a provider. It just means accountability. Let's face it. If I'm going to give you these drugs, scheduled drugs, and remember the root word is controlled substances. They are controlled by you and by me. I don't need to hear certain of uh, these red flags because it just changes the conversation and it changes how I think. Now, I'm going to be rating you as a low, medium, or high risk. Don't worry about that. If I deem you a high risk, it's not because I think you're a problem. I think high risk people sometimes are on certain medications that come to me, like methadone. I think people are high risk that have a lot of comorbid diseases. And they're on a number of medications, and they may have something like sleep apnea, morbidly obese. They may have advanced stage uh, lung disease, that sort of thing. I've got to be careful. I've got to know what I'm doing here. So, all right, we get the urine screen. And, okay, we're going to interpret it a couple of ways. There's, this ways, there's a way of doing it with a point-of-care cup. In other words, it's not completely accurate. It's helpful. But it's uh, where we can get kind of an immediate reading. And it's not always specific. But I'll tell you something. If it comes back with benzolignine in it, and that's a metabolite of cocaine, it's done. That is cocaine. And you don't get marijuana passively, people. You don't get marijuana passively. Uh, If you are popping marijuana positive anywhere in any drug test... You had to have a high concentration blown at you. In other words, you would have known or you'd have smoked it or taken it or something. Now, there are some false positive drugs, and it's beyond the scope here of this conversation. But, you know, just remember when you turn to me and I've in that low, low voice and gentle, non-threatening voice, and you say I take X, Y, Z... And I like to say, okay, well, let's get a drug test, and I just do this, and I go through this process of uh, informed consent, just so you know what you're getting. Then uh, um, you say, well, I just want to be honest with you. That's another one of those lines. I hear it all day long. I just want to be honest with you. Well, let me tell you something, and this this is to my friends and providers all over that listen to these podcasts. I don't care if they're honest. That's not what I care about. I care about their safety. And they can be the most honest person in the world and be shooting up heroin, tell me about it, and have a fentanyl patch on and taking benzodiazepines. And I just want to be honest with you. And I want to, 
I want to keep you alive. And this is our conversation here forward. So, you know, you can be honest with me, but, you know, really, you have to understand my mission is to not only keep you from harming yourself, but to harming others. So that's a, that's a conversation we have to have. It's called a harms conversation. And I might do something called Espert. It's kind of a ridiculous uh, set of strewn-together letters. And we'll talk about that in some of the addiction lectures. But my conversation then changed to, changes to a very directed conversation on are you going to harm yourself or others? And I will ask you, do you wish to harm yourself or others? In other words, I am going to document you have no suicidal ideation, you have no thoughts therein, and you, you aren't going to go home and do something. I'm also going to ask you, and you're going to say, this is nuts. Why is he asking me all these questions? Who lives with you? Uh, and, okay, well, what's, what's it like at home? Or do you work? Or who doesn't work? Your kids go to school? Or how old are they? And that sort of thing. I want to know that home situation. Is it a high-risk environment? Is it a chaotic lifestyle? Are there young children at home? And you got a fentanyl patch, and it keeps rolling off and falling on the floor. Well, that kid can get it, and that would be tragic. And if you bring me the story, my dog uh, ate my pills, well, bring me your dead dog. Okay, so I don't want to hear things going down the toilet. I don't want to hear things going down the sink. People don't lose their erythromycin prescriptions that way. Just remember... This is going to change my conversation to me. It's a story. I, I have to think like this for the safety of all involved. Okay, so where are we at? All right, in a, once I get my, my data together, and I've talked for a while, I want to pick the right medication for you. Now, we're talking opioids today, and I'm just going to leave it at opioids. I'm not going to go off on vectors and tangents of other medications and adjunctive care. For what you don't know is adjunctive care, it's like I can use supplemental medications like gabapentin, Neurontin, or um, uh, Gray Lease is another uh, uh, term uh, used for long-acting. Horizon is another long-acting gabapentin that we know decreases the need for more opioids. It actually is potentially opioid sparing. And that's why uh, acetaminophen is in with hydrocodone. It's opioid sparing. You can use less opioid. Okay, so I'm sticking just to opioids because that conversation, as you can see, can go down four different rat holes if I don't watch what I'm you know, saying about What's pertinent? What's pertinent is getting you the right medicine and making sure we have the right conversations. You see where I'm going here, right? Okay, so during the interview process, you now see kind of what I'm doing. I'm setting up benchmarks. I'm setting up risk management. And I'm now making, as a medical decision, a choice. Are you a suitable candidate? Legitimate medical need is met. Do we have a diagnosis? Can I safely give you these drugs? I mean, it's a home environment all the way backwards. Okay. And what to give you? <clears throat> I'm taking into account comorbid disease. I'm taking into account other medications you're taking. Okay, I'm going to pick, pick a drug. All right, I might say something like this. I, you know, I noticed that you're taking 6 to 10 Percocet a day. The Percocet is this oxycodone with Tylenol in it. Well, I can hurt your liver. All that acetaminophen can hurt your liver. And I have a better drug. And I want this to be quiet, and I want this to be a good conversation. 
I want I want you to try some new drugs that I think have better uh, response cycles to your problems. Like you might have a little neuropathy, but you have some pain and this sort of thing. And I have a drug that can help that. What you're driving is a 1998 Impala, and I want to give you a brand new Cadillac. <clears throat> okay, well, this is something I might hear. I might hear, well, what do you mean? What, what are you going to give me? Uh, um, I have a new drug, and I'm going to call it drug X, Y, and Z. Uh, and this drug is brand new, and I'm thinking of a drug, by the way, uh, <laughs> a real good drug, Tepentanol. But I have a, a drug that utilizes new, newer pharmacologic technology uh, that actually helps neuropathy and does help your pain is in some studies, not crossover studies for providers, not crossover, but comparative studies, very similar to oxycodone and pain relief. And it's just a better drug. You're going to drive a Cadillac today. Now, remember, people that are not necessarily addicted, but dependent on opioids and and very afraid of change, they'll, they'll operate on emotion and not logic. So you as providers... And many of you as patients will say, awesome, (laughs) I want to try something new. This is great. And if you say it's safer, yeah, you know what? You can even abruptly stop this drug 97% of the time. You won't have any withdrawal. How about that? That's pretty cool. So so let's just say you get real sick one weekend, can't take your pill. You're not going to go through withdrawal or some other reason. We got to change your medicine. You won't go through. Wow, that's awesome. I really want. That's the logical mind. The mind that might be a little hijacked by these medications will say, well, you know, I know my body pretty good, and this medicine's working really well, and I just don't want to change. I know me, and I know my pain. Well, you know, I know your pain, too. (laughs) I know a lot of things about you that would lend me to believe we want to make a change. Well, where are we going to go from here? Uh, This is called an opioid stress test, okay? And that's what I call it. And that's what it's going to be. It's an opioid stress test. It's not unreasonable to change somebody uh, on different drugs to either enhance the effectiveness of these drugs or to reduce the risk or to take into account comorbid problems or other medications. It's not unreasonable. And I'm not being an unreasonable physician for asking you to try it. And I, I can tell you, this is part of the rules. Um, this is part of a policy. I'm going to give you maybe a new drug that I think is in your best interest. Don't go to the parking lot and get on your smartphone and be looking up what it does or go to bluelight.com or opiophile.org and looking at these weather, rather questionable sites and look at what other people are saying about them and like chat rooms and things like that because I'll know. And getting a phone call two hours uh, later when I start you on a fentanyl patch and says, oh, I'm throwing up and I can't take it. I've got to have something else. I've got to have my oxycodone back. Well, it takes 11 hours for fentanyl to get into you, uh, basically, to go transdermally. Okay, that's not going to work. How about I give you some of these brand new drugs? Well, don't look up that one of the side effects is it you know, may cause shortness of breath or may cause headache or may cause dizziness. They all do that. You know, if if water was invented today, it would have a black box warning that says you can drown. 
let's just face it. If when these drugs are being tested and being FDA approved through that rather rigorous process, except for marijuana, go figure. Um, well, they they are the people in these later phases of the trial list all the side effects. Well, if it's listed as side effect, it goes in the in the PDR. It goes into the informational uh, materials, and that's the way the system works. It doesn't mean necessarily many people are going to have that problem. Most companies, when they do these studies or comparative analysis or um, retrospective analysis, cohort studies, whatever you want to call it, they will list and compare other drugs, and you will have a good idea what the real side effects are. And the real side effects of some of these drugs that the patients want to get back on are far exceeding the potential theoretical risks of some of the other really good new drugs. Let's face it, the F- FDA does not want a new opioid to come to the market without abuse deterrent technology. In other words, um, technology to avoid people from crushing and snorting, injecting, and that sort of thing. These abuse deterrent technologies, as you've heard in other podcasts, are, are great. They're going to save lives. But uh, patients sometimes don't like them, and they know it. I can tell. So when I write a drug and they say, does that have that wrapper on it? Because my stomach, oh, it's terrible. It's like razor blades. I throw up. That wrapper makes my stomach throw up. Red flag. Don't tell me that. That's the abuse to turn technology. It doesn't do that. You know, there may be some reports of some people that feel that it does this sort of thing, but it's a red flag. And I, I really want to give you what you need, not necessarily what you want. And that's going to be a responsible uh, prescribing habit. Remember rule four, know thy meds, know thy categories, and know meds in those categories. That was from one of those early podcasts. I am sorry. They were terrible. But, I, you know, I want to get the information across. The, rule, the five rules are the five rules. I live by those rules. So, okay, I've picked on medicine. We've had our conversation. And you go get it filled. Well, I do take into account, and this is America, that insurance companies can be quirky on some of these medicines. And for the life of me, they I don't know why they will let me prescribe some and not others. For, other, for some insurance companies, they'll let me prescribe some of the riskiest medicines out there vis-a-vis cheap generic medicines, and I can't give you the best ones on the planet that are safe and better. I call it more betterer. They they have a financial incentive for me to prescribe, say, methadone. Well, not a good choice for uh, a lot of patients. So, yeah, it's cheap, maybe 8 bucks, 10 bucks a month. Or how about uh, oxycodone? Well, yeah, it's cheap. Uh, it's snortable. Uh, I don't want this person getting this. I, they have legitimate medical need. I've got other good drugs. Let me try something different. So you get the point. All right. You go to the grocery store, wherever you get your medicine filled. And, um, okay, great. You get, you get the drug. You go home with it. Remember, one pill does not change your life. You know, you, you can't say to me, uh, I, I don't have my 
oxycodone for breakthrough. You just gave me that long-acting medicine, and I need that midday oxycodone or I'm, I'm in the bed. Don't tell me that one pill is going to change your life like that. That's a, an enormous red flag for me. No, these drugs develop a serum level. It may take five half-lives, or it may take a little bit of time, um, but they're going to get there, and when they get to the uh, serum level that is therapeutic, you're really probably not going to need a breakthrough medicine because the medicine's on there, and it's occupying the mu receptor. It's sitting there. Let it do its job. Quit focusing on the pills, the motion like we talked about of taking a pill. All right, so next, what do we do? We see him back, and we see him back based on a number of issues, okay? So the question is, when we bring them in, what, what are we asking them? We're asking patients to be compliant. Please follow directions. We're asking them to follow the patient care agreement. It's not a contract, but it's an opioid Agreement that you're going to go to one pharmacy, one prescribing physician or group, and that you're going to be real careful about new medications you start, and you're going to tell us those new medications, okay? We're clear on that. You're going to be available for pill counts, and they understand that there will be urine drug screens, and that's part of adherence monitoring, and they just understand the rules. And they also understand this process of informed consent. That's really a lot on the provider to make sure that the patient understands the risk award, all these things we talked about, potential for dependency, tolerance, even potential addiction. So based on the risk, high risk, medium, low risk, they come back. Okay, they come back. It might be 48 hours. They may come back in two weeks. They may come back in a month. Or it might be that lollop, that little old lady in pain, that beautiful lady we love. Um, She might be able to be extended out. It depends on circumstances, distance to travel, convenience to travel, travel ability. And you're just going to have to make a good clinical decision and document it. That's important. You will be challenged, uh, my, my good people, if you've come a long, long way to see a provider and you've passed a few other uh, pain clinics along the way or sources for a pain control. You may, somebody may want to know, and I've, I've been involved in this situation with somebody. I actually defended them, that they came, the patients came a long way to see this one provider. The red flag is that an easy provider to get opioids? Is that a pill mill? Now, there's a lot of reasons Sometimes people have to go to certain providers, and it has to do with expertise, and it has to do with uh, willingness to treat certain disease states. It has a lot of things to do, so you have to defend it. So that's documented. All right, they come back, uh, a process of adherence monitoring. If you need to get another urine, you listen to the little voice. It's not predetermined. I don't want to be hearing that I do them, quote, randomly. We do urine drug screens based on need, okay? It's a defined need. That defined need is made by the clinical experience, by the patient experience, by, you know, a lot of database 
enhancements like querying the PDMP, uh, some maybe quirky comments made uh, during the interview process and that sort of thing. It's very, it's very much uh, provider's responsibility to understand when to get it. And it is by need. It isn't random. I don't want to hear about rolling some dice or something like that. You know, you may have somebody that, yeah, they had a little bit of a history, a little hiccup at one time, and they had a little bit of problem in their life, but they're cleaned up. They're straight. They're good. They may not need a urine drug screen for half a year. But then there's sometimes that little old lady in pain, that young man. I I give my nephew my Oxycontin, and he gives me money so I can pay my rent or my heating bill or something like that. That happens. Well, you know, everybody's a snowflake, but use good clinical guidance. That's that little voice. Listen to that little voice. All right. So, all right, let's take it. Let's take it next step. How long are they going to be on these medications? Pain is not an opioid deficiency. Okay. It's not normal for you to have opioids running around in your blood system. It's, you know, people say, well, you have endogenous opioids. What what do I mean by that? You have uh, enkephalins and endorphins and, you know, you have all these things floating around that are normally inside of you. Yeah, so what? You have them inside of you. Your body's used to having them inside of you. I am talking about synthetic and man-made opioids and those that are uh, coming from um, everything from opium extraction on down. Those aren't meant to be in you. Those have a strong dopamine response um, that that can become habitual very fast. In my addiction practice, I do see younger people fastest uh, absorbed uh, into this world of addiction. They don't mean to be there, but they may have broken their leg or something, and now they can't they can't go without the oxycodone and start doing things they didn't, never thought they would do. So we have to always be thinking: Do we have an exit strategy here? Are they going to be on opioids for the rest of their life? Well, yeah, maybe. You know, there is that cancer diagnosis. You know, goes back to rule two. There, yeah, maybe they have had miserable failed back surgery syndrome, where they have arachnoiditis. Maybe. They have a peripheral neuropathy that's responding nicely to this medication you have them on. has a dual mechanism of action, like a tepentanol, like I talked about. And it works just so beautifully with them. They don't need a lot of other adjunctive medications that had a lot of side effects or sedating side effects or intolerable side effects. And this is a good drug. Well, they're not showing any misuse, abuse, or diversion, aberrancies. It's okay. But the monitoring doesn't stop. Okay? All right, we've talked about a lot, haven't we? And I'll continue to talk about opioids, but that's kind of the world, according to me, the world that I walk into every morning when I go through the doors of the office. It's it's not straightforward. And when people look at a, a physician's bill and they look at the bill and they go, what? What is this? You can kind of get a sense of all this background stuff. It's uh, no more so than when we walk into the world of opioids with an epidemic at 19,000 deaths a year. You can bet we're going to be really careful. Absolutely. I'm surprised more uh, people don't uh, just join the uproar over uh, opioid uh, uh, misuse, abuse, and diversion. Because if there a few people had troubles with Vioxx. Remember that? Refecoxib? A few people and mounted a number of lawsuits. A few people had problems. Uh, what about 
19,000 people, more than car wrecks. You'd think there would be a, a public outrage. Well, okay, I don't want to get into availability uh, during this talk, but I will tell you, the American, I think it's the American Medical Association, I think it is, they just uh, dropped the fifth uh, vital sign. So he, opioids were, quote, the fifth vital sign. This got us in this mess where uh, I looked at an individual in the hospital or I looked at an individual in my clinic, and we asked them about their opioids, and it was felt that they should be given the relief they need despite opioid dosing. And the Federation of State Medical Boards and others pretty much embraced it, endorsed it. And it was on flawed methodology. And guess what? That's kind of how we got here. And it's not the only way we got here, but I think they finally agreed with most pain practitioners the fifth pathway is ridiculous and it's just going to lead to more problems. So uh, hats off to them. Kudos, kudos, kudos. And once again, visit me on paininformation.com. Leave a, leave a uh, review of this rant. <laughs> but I hope it's useful to not only patients to understand the process, but also to providers to just see what, you know, what the world is inside our head. Uh, I, I can tell you the light at the end of the tunnel is in a truck. And pain management practitioners are not a black hole. We usually have a plan, and it's not just a monthly prescription. And for primary care physicians and others that do treat pain that may not ha have a lot of training but really want to help people, say, in rural areas, they just don't have access to um, pain clinics and that sort of thing, or fellowship trained pain providers, etc. You, you know, it's 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 okay. You, don't practice in fear. Practice uh, by that little voice that you hear. You know what's right and wrong. You know where the red flags are. Please go in armed to see patients with as much information to help them and help the community. It is not a moral failing to have a hiccup or two, and it's going to happen. Don't get frustrated with patients. Love them where they're at. Um, you can't cure everybody, but you can help them heal, okay? And with that, I will talk to you soon.